As a performer, your body is there. Hi, I'm Mad Kate, and you're listening to Sweat, sexuality, work, extraction, art, theatrics. Sweat is a series of conversations about performance and performativity of the sexual and sexualized body at work, where work is defined as the labor of survival, the labor of care, creativity, and capital A, art. How exactly do we define our work? And how does that work entangle and circumscribe our sexual identities, our creative lives, and the ways in which we provide care? How do we perform tasks, acts of care, and identities? Anchored in our always already sexualized and racialized bodies, our complex intersectionalities, these conversations are about how we relate to our work and to each other through performance of work and creativity. I hope that they contribute to dialogues which normalize sex work as work and all work as deserving of respect, healthy conditions, and a living wage. Reciprocity involves, I would imagine, shifting, you know, what we call the flipped classroom or shifting the relationship so that we share the dynamic of leadership, essentially. This conversation, who leads the, the creative craft. So then the reciprocity is going to be found not in a one-to-oneness, but in a kind of mesh operations and power dynamics. This month's conversation is with performer, dancer, and professor Thomas F. de France, who teaches at Northwestern University. I spoke to Tommy together with my collaborator, Adrian Teicher, in the context of our project Hyenas, in our research about extractivist practices and the arts. Together with Tommy, we spoke about time, Black aesthetics, nowness, and the process of building creative encounters. Allow it to emerge rather than to need to know what it's gonna be. And that's challenging, but also foundational in Black aesthetic. This idea that you create a container or a structure and then really encourage the something to emerge. That's the actual platform, not the thing that emerges, but the platform where something could emerge. Tommy directs Slippage, performance, Culture Technology, a research lab that explores emerging technology in live performance applications. Tommy believes in our shared capacity to do better and engage creative spirit for a collective good that is anti-racist, proto-feminist, and queer-affirming. So I wanted to tell you a little bit about what we're doing here. I figured we'd start with that. Adrian and I um, have been working in a performance and sound recording project um, for the last 10 years, actually. And um, we work mostly with field recordings to begin the compositions of our music. Mm. And one of the things that has been increasingly important to us um, and that we've been learning along the way is sort of the politics of field recordings and how we think about context when we take field recordings and then how that can, when we uh, later transform the field recordings and use them to create compositions that we later dance to, how that even informs the way in which we move and how the field recordings work as sort of uh, memory, how they call us back physically to the site of the recording itself. Right now, and we've been working with something we have been calling 
extraction or extractivism or thinking about that as it relates to field recording, but also more broadly as it relates to artistic practices. Well, actually, it, it began in 2015 because we did a field recording inside of the marble mine in the Mergia region of Italy. And we were working with some of the people that lived in that town. And we went down into the mine and we kind of spontaneously started playing just shards of rocks against the the edges of the mine. And we created spontaneously this really beautiful piece of music. It made us think about this metaphorical idea of, of mining for, you know, whether it's natural resources or the way in which we mine for maybe the exotic inside of ourselves or the way that we take from others in artistic practice or the way that we take from other non-human actors or natural resources in artistic practices. I agree. I think it's about searching for an ethical framework for the work that we're doing. And it sometimes it's obvious when you're dealing with human collaborators, not maybe not obvious, but at least more, more clear where the potential for harm and exploitation occurs. And then when we're dealing with non-human animals or landscapes or things like that, we're trying to work out a way that we can have some sort of ethical relationship, um, if it's possible, and whether there's some kind of reciprocity or, or responsibility is, is, is possible in these kinds of contexts and what that would look like. So beautiful. Thank you so much first to both of you and all the people who come with you <laughs> for inviting me into this conversation. Um, uh, these kinds of conversations are juicy and dynamic. These questions you're asking are really important. You know, the Anthropocene, I'm in the south of France right now where there are fires raging a little bit west of here. And this part of the planet isn't used to these kinds of fires. And I'm based in the United States where we're used to all sorts of fires um, because of climate change over the last 25, 30, 100, 150 years. So these kinds of questions about human when we're allowed to be human, because we're not all allowed to be human. Some of us are just refugees or, you know, prisoners of war or not even that. Yeah. Um, that said, the relationship of human to other kinds of material, living and non-living, it's just so crucial right now, especially. So I am busy with these questions around how do we move with time? And one thing I heard, even as you set this up, um, Kate, as you were talking about the relationship to the mine and the the rocks and the wall, you know, it just raised a question of time. So that word spontaneous was important in the storytelling. Mm. Um, but maybe in time, it wouldn't necessarily feel extracted in a certain kind of way. That was just something I was thinking about. We don't have to jump mm -hmm. in right now. Mm, but I was beautiful. thinking about time. Time is a way to to sort of start to render um, our affiliation among each other. So yes, among people, but also among places and objects and processes of art making. Um, some things just might take time. Because I'll bet there was, in, even in that mind, but I'm sure there was sound, so much sound already there, even before you, you know, were manipulating objects in the space and then connecting the sounds that were there that probably took longer to hear because they're just all out. It's always sound, you know, and then how did they want to be in relationship to 
reactions that you make as musicians and makers. Um, and then, then maybe it, it starts to feel like collaboration. But I guess I do want to say maybe one thing we can talk about is even as we're looking for ethical compass or ethical relationality, it's not as though there's one ethical way to be or as though we even know what that is. Right. So something around how we kind of decide um, a container or a, a kind of um, landscape for an ethical sort of agenda, that, that seems important as well. Yeah. I, I know when I'm, when I'm trying to find a rela- ethical relationship with, with uh, a mine or, or a stone, I'm still very much aware that it's still a construction that I'm making. I might develop a very interesting framework, drawing in animism and different elements and decide that, I, that rocks are sentient, but I still feel like the activity is still coming through me. And that can also happen in all kinds of collaborations when we decide that with others, even human others, that we, we know how now how to, to speak to certain excluded others and we're going to do, this, to, to do the speaking with them. It's still very much <clears throat> then coming through. A rubric that I am I'm defining, and I'm and, and so it seems impossible to get get away from that centering myself, even as I'm trying to center others. It is a trick of the the human. If we're going to allow the human to be a category, which we probably have to do, because here we are in conversation through technology. <laughs> but it is a trick of the human to to render everything in relationship to that category. And I don't really know a way around that part of it. So then something I'm busy with um, is how, how we're aware of those renderings. So um, I like to say something like um, noticing the drifting of the code. And that's an image of a matrix, the moon matrix. Mm-hmm. Um, being aware of, the, you know, the, being aware of the environment or the sun. You know, I'm sitting at a really lovely park right now. And there's so much movement and activity among these plants and trees just so much. And then all the, the cigars that I can't see, but I can hear and they're, you know, they're rummaging and then the wind comes and moves things just a little bit. And here come the mosquitoes. I mean, there's just so much and lively. So if I take the time to allow my presence to shrink a bit, then I can start to become aware of something that'll take much longer than an afternoon in the park <laughs> yeah. to understand. So, so I guess I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, offering this this dimension of time and it's because i was just reading with some other thinkers cruising utopia again and thinking about the then there queer futurity and you know time is something that capitalism wants to straighten of course and put us into modes of productivity but when we allow time to spiral or circle back or in atomism or in you know first uh, nation sort of cosmologies time just does many different things and in the black church practices that I grew up in, time can be folded. So just other ways to think about time as a way to start to rethink relationship. How do you practice that? Like, when, What are some of your, your practices to explore that? Well, one thing I definitely do, and I love that question, I have found silent meditation days. And I don't meditate, so I don't have a, a practice of meditation myself. So, you know, I want to be clear on that because so many people I know do. And that's amazing. But I do take days I don't speak seem super productive for me. And part of that is because I'm bound up in daily activities that involve like this. A lot of conversation, mm-hmm. thinking through discourse and uh, being in relationships with people, explaining ideas together or 
trying to work it out or, you know, in family life or social life as well, just, just chatting it up. And for me, these kinds of days of a, a refusal to speak allow me to actually be in different relationship to matter and to time. This is a kind of gesture towards something that helps me stretch time or reinitiate time. So that's one thing I do around thinking about how time functions. Another thing I do is I move. So I'll have some sound in the air and then I'll allow that to um, help me render kind of memory to gesture. So, you know, take big splotches of time and allow them to unfold. And I'm a little curious about, about that, like how you, how you negotiate time as it relates to actually as a, as a working body. Well, we do have these impulses, don't we? So we have, you know, what we call erotic impulses or needs to express gender and sexuality and race and, and age and spirituality. And, and sometimes they're quite immediate. Like, I just need to do this now. I need to have sex. I need to express um, care and love towards someone. So for me, there is this sense of like, we need all of it. So that's kind of in my, I don't know how it got in there, but it's in the way that I, I, I think of possibility in relationship. Like, I just need different kinds of things at different times. So it's like understanding a kind of, kind of polyvalence or life as a process rather than a, a, an output. So that process sometimes is, yeah, I want to actually finish an essay today, you know, and I want to do it today. So our mother thinks are important late. I'm not answering any email, you know, so that in a way sounds like priority or, or making timelines or something. But I really, to your first point, your first story, for me, it's a bit more like a certain spontaneity trying to really follow the curve of the day um, then, and, and see where it takes. And then trying to also understand the affordance of place and circumstance. So I've been in the South of France for six weeks now. And, you know, what's been lovely is I haven't looked at a television at all. And when I'm in Chicago, which is the place I'm based now in the United States, that's the first thing in the morning and the last thing at the night. You know, I, I watch the news in the morning as I'm having coffee. And at night, I'll watch some show that gives me comfort before I go to sleep. And so just, just paying attention to the different kinds of activities that help the day turn towards itself, trying to make space for different kinds of relationships to emerge and acknowledging how they have different urgencies. When, it, when, when can reading happen, go to the gym or, or dance a bit? One thing that I, I often struggle with though is, is understanding how to get in sync with other people. So mm -hmm. having social time that's not scheduled but is able to just kind of pop into itself. And I think that's, that is a challenge of this late capitalism. Mm -hmm, indeed. If I can ask you how actually you define your work and your practice. Yes. My work and my practice. I'm curious about relationships and orientations. So how people gather and share information and then craft stories or time together. And I think that's my work. And I think my practice has to do with staying available 
each encounter and the ways that they unfold, whether they are technologically based in terms of writing code or creating an interface, or they are performance based in terms of crafting gesture and time in space, or they are based in research and, and sharing ideas that become literary or literature around dance or performance or Black life. I think that if I were to describe my work, I would start there, that the work is about crafting and caring in relationship and the curiosity of encounter. And then the practice is caring for those encounters. Is it possible to build reciprocal relations when collaborating in artistic contexts? Yeah, that's such a great question around reciprocity and are reciprocal relationships even possible? I mean, our good friend Michel Foucault <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> you know, says, well, power is always present in every social relation and power cannot be shared. It's unidirectional. And it is directional. And um, I still find that to be true, that the terms of relationship are governed in a way by fields and forces of power. Mm -hmm. And reciprocity involves, I would imagine, shifting, you know, what we call the flipped classroom. We're shifting the relationship so that we share the dynamic of leadership, essentially. This conversation, who leads the the creative craft. Right. So then the reciprocity is going to be found not in a one-to-oneness, but in a kind of mesh of relations and power dynamics. So the thing that a performer can do that are quite different from a designer of the same project mm. um, means that reciprocity might show up in terms of an alongsideness. Mm -hmm. rather than a kind of, now you're in charge, now you're in charge. And as you say, that reminds me that even the way that it's kind of, the way that I framed reciprocity just now kind of assumes two unitary subjects um, <laughs> who arrive already with, with certain desires and needs that are complete and rather than an encounter in which these things get defined or redefined. Yeah, I think that's so important that if the work or the practices are around the encounter and the relationship, then it's not like a bank where you're giving something in, something out. That <laughs> there's there's the the open mesh of possibilities, and you know that becomes a way maybe to to con conceive of something a little more healthy. Hopefully, is there something that you maybe start a collaboration with, or are there specific practical actions that you find yourself taking to pay attention to this mesh of relations? Yeah, I try to, so this is part of practice and, you know, this, this word care, um, which might be a little overused now, but it is a kind of paying attention to. So I try to, stay available to the encounter. And I, I know I said that before, but what that means for me is a, a kind of awareness that I'm only going to know the tiniest bit about whatever's going to happen. So then mm. 
the opportunity is to to essentially learn something through the encounter. <laughs> so even if I'm a so-called choreographer or a lead artist, you know, my opportunity is to to discover in in our encounter what else there could be. So that's that's you know, that's part of my practice. It's like a well, what could this be? So uh, this and that, you know, which is also part of this, not that. So for me, the practice is, is again, this, this kind of availability rather than a, a kind of like shutting down or shuddering or thinking I know. That's really interesting. I think I agree with you uh, that, that this, it's about, that care is about both paying attention to and making oneself available, that there's two, two aspects that are really necessary. Because paying attention, I mean, as, as someone who's very sociopathic can pay a lot of attention, but in order to be manipulative. But when you make yourself available, make yourself vulnerable, and to an extent readable by others, then I think this reciprocity then actually creeps in to the uh, encounter. Yeah, that was helpful what you offered at the beginning there. This idea of like paying attention also is maybe to the potential of what's among us rather than what do you need or what do I want? So it is this kind of like regulating or, or, or monitoring my own desire inside of it so that my desire doesn't take over the possibility of our encounter. And I think that's where the trickiness is. Yes. So, you know, you might think of this as humility or a kind of willingness to let things unfold, allow things to unfold, understand that, you know, my presence already is going to going to have an impact or an right. effect. It's not it's not innocent. If mm-hmm. if we're in conversation, I'm not suddenly innocent mm-hmm. of being in the conversation. At the same time, to kind of allow events to arrive and this is our other friend John the Nancy like not to try to make community happen which is a really possible but to allow community to emerge by setting conditions for encounter and the conditions are about a kind of curiosity and wonder which is a funny word that, that's not very popular because it sounds naive but it sounds apolitical to wonder at the same time, wonder might be another way to, to, to articulate a willingness to not know. Yeah. Yeah, that's so, it's so interesting and beautiful to think about that way of kind of being aware of one's own desire for something to happen and to also be able to sit with the idea that sometimes it can't. And um, I mean, it makes me wonder about what to do in that moment of sitting, sitting with when while the waiting and the unfolding happens and that that those those feelings that might arise of of wanting something that that is not mutually wanted yeah i mean i think that's that's lifelong learning stuff you know everyone has their own sort of tempo around desire and ambition and you know in the us context greed and xenophobia and, and all those things. I guess they're in every context on the planet, you know, yeah. through all history and right. future. Yeah. At the same time, that is something to, to to watch or pay attention to this kind of like, you know, desire and need being collapsed into each other. Um, you know, because there are things that people do need. 
uh, or talking about experimental performance or live art, you know, we're, we're talking about crafting desire in directions with intentionality of some sort, then, you know, that desire is there. It's part of what it is to build a project. But I guess for me, I tend to think maybe I can't get that now. If I do get stuck on an idea of something I think I want, you know, I tend to try to cast it back into time. And that helps me feel like, well, you know, maybe I can't solve this now or, you know, get someone to do something I want them to do, you know, but then maybe that's about just a not now. And if I can reflect on what my desire actually was there, maybe I could let go of it because I don't really need something I've learned through time. In my own creative craft is, you know, I don't need someone to do something in particular to fulfill me. And I think when I was a younger artist, I thought I did. And you know, I just know better now. That's not true. <laughs> but somehow, like, I, I know I didn't literally think this to be the case, but when I was starting out my performance career, it really felt like I was going to die if this show did not turn out how I hoped it would turn out. Yeah, yeah. And this kind of, like, product or output rather than process, like, I feel like that's also, we're we're talking about time a little bit. So... The process of building creative encounter, you know, it isn't limited or delimited by an output of a performance. So just as you're suggesting, you know, as we perform more and more, or make more and more stuff, we start to understand that it's, it's relative and that sometimes amazing things happen and other times it's part of a process, you know, of moving towards those amazing things or not. <laughs> you started off talking about... Um storytelling and I'm curious how you handle other people's stories what are some of the practical things you do to provide care and allow for those stories to unfold while still playing the role of say choreographer or director yeah you know I, I try to maintain again my own curiosity so the structures that I tend to create or be involved in always have these open spaces or the performers or interpreters. I like that word interpreters, the interpreters to explore. And then um, I performed last weekend in someone else's project. And I remember, you know, when we were doing our check-ins, I was, I kept languaging it like, oh, I'm so excited to be able to explore this material. And, you know, like that was really the opportunity not to produce a performance. <laughs> like, so those sound really different to me. And then, you know, when I'm working alongside younger artists in a tap dance formation for their college dance show, for example, and, you know, there's a microphone on stage, and then I ask them to explore an idea through words as part of this performance, and then try to create the space where they're encouraged to allow it to emerge rather than to need to know what it's going to be. And that's challenging, but also foundational in Black aesthetics. Like, that's how we built jazz and we built hip-hop a little bit. Um, this idea that you create a container or a structure and then really encourage the something to emerge. Like, that's the actual platform, not the thing that emerges, but the platform where something could emerge is what we're trying to explore. So for me, that just seems really important to to stay involved in the curiosity of the what will happen. When um, we made a piece called Theoriography 
And there have been five different iterations of it over the last 10 years. And I think the fourth one had a lot of traction and toured around the planet a lot. And um, that was a project where five of the collaborators created their own sort of set moments. Like they did whatever they wanted in like seven or 10 minutes. And we all witnessed whatever they did. And that structure, I thought, was really helpful because it, it wasn't as though the, the collaborators just did whatever they wanted. I mean, we worked together long enough to understand what we were trying to build among each other. But the idea that I, as lead artists, would tell them what to do, like that wasn't, that was never part of the program. <laughs> so the fact of our assembly was the, the telling what to do after that. We all just figured it out among each other. And that's still my preferred sort of format. I'm developing a, a quartet now, and we're using a similar process. We've worked um, in two sessions so far. We'll probably have five before we share it with the uh, general public. Um, but we're figuring it out together. And there's no, you know, we, we've settled on some things to, to work through among each other, but it's not, and then you'll do this, and then this must happen. So it's a collaborative process. That's really beautiful. I'm I'm curious to what I what I heard you say in part, and maybe uh, you could tell me if I heard correctly, is that in a sense you also see that this creation of a kind of container or a platform in which a process happens is part of Black aesthetic and Black life. And I'm wondering if you want to tell me more about that. I would like to learn more about why you feel that that also is fundamental to Black aesthetic. Yeah, that's terrific. And I do think it's fundamental in, you know, what we call Black aesthetics. And I want to spend a minute on how that tends to sound like or even be African-American as opposed to global Black. You know, like you know, our, our sisters and trans kin in Congo or in Senegal might not feel connected to the way I'm talking about Black aesthetics. And that's only fair. You know, I, Black American and coming from a very particular kind of um, 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 orientation around Black aesthetics. So that said, uh, in the context of the United States, Black life is defined by a certain sort of fugitivity. Like you always have to be moving in order to be present. And you have to be a little blurry in order to be present because there's not space made for stability or visibility. Like visibility has not ever been uh, sort of um, rewarded for Black Americans. So then we have a, an aesthetic practice that is around improvisation. Mm. and creating through the terms of what's possible now. And so this, this way that time is, feeds into Black aesthetics is really important, that it's about a nowness. So it's not what you did yesterday when you were in the cipher or doing the house dance or dancing in the stands if you're a J-setter or a, a sequin dancer at the football game. It's what are you going to do now? Mm. And this, what are you going to do is always, again, this open mesh of possibilities. Well, you could do anything. So what choices do you want to make to craft performance now? And, you know, how our relationship to recording industry and media is, is vexed. 
because our aesthetic practices are around changing whatever the thing is or something unexpected. So in jazz, you know, we, we play the instruments in a really different way. It's like, oh, well, it doesn't have to actually make that sound. It can make these other sounds. And then in early hip-hop, early DJ, you could play the music backwards or scratch the record. Like, you actually use the technology to do something unexpected. So um, I do think Black Aesthetics has a vexed relationship to technologies of capture, mm-hmm. like recording, you know, video recording or 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 sound recording, because um, you want to be able to do something now, not then. That's so interesting. Thank you. Thank you for that. Does that persist then once once those once that those particular forms of nowness become institutionalized? You know, and we have like hip hop as a as a as a genre as a genre, uh, for example. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we tend to see black cultural formations in the U.S. last they last a little shorter now than they used to, but they used to last. Well, first it was like fifty years. Then it was like twenty five years like 10 years um you know now we're down into like five-year cycles for stuff to stay interesting and and sort of in the front of an imagination and then it's replaced by something else but this is all generational and age group affiliation so peer groups produce their own dances and language and fashion and even cooking and, and and music um and then there's another sort of pure group that emerges that has a different way to, to work through similar ideas. So yeah, these are generational, if you will, um, sort of tendencies. I'm asking because out of a curiosity about there's a reading like Mark Fisher and hauntology and just his writing about how that the kind of cultural forms that we, that we can reach for now are kind of are repetitions of like a lot of things we saw already in the 1980s, just kind of, um, kind of re- repeating themselves over and over because we can't imagine a future anymore, and so that, that leads me to, to wonder. You said that like um, that a, a lot of um, black cultural forms uh, that they're very much in the now rather than in the past. But what role does um, future play? Do you think? Yeah, so black aesthetics are really interesting because black life has no future. So this is where black life and queer life are just super in step with each other. You know, so it's not about producing a future because there's not ever been terms of future possibility. And this is part of what makes Black fantasy or Afrofuturism so incredibly um, um, provocative and interesting because, you know, there hasn't been until pretty recently this idea that there could be a kind of Black future or futurity. Futurity is just not rewarded in the same way that stability has not been rewarded for black life and black aesthetics that said you know um i do think that it's we're not in a a loop of the 80s like i disagree with that yeah kind of a set you know what i mean because it's true that hip-hop emerges as the first entirely digital sort of form or technologically infused form of black expressive culture you know it's the first one that really Emerges in lockstep with coding and and signal processing in that way. Mm. We're not done. I mean, I don't think we're anywhere <laughs> innovative <laughs> to the the Beyonce album. But you know, like so, corporate culture 
how much can you think of it in terms of being black culture, but there are black cultural tenets in it. What's interesting about it is just the numbers of samples. So it's a little bit like that, that DJ girl talk from 15 years ago who used to just paste together hundreds of little bits of information. And Beyonce and her team have done something really similar where there's just so much information in each track that you're invited to understand time as not being linear because you're constantly encouraged to think across objects and across their historical moments and how they sound. And, you know, so it's like getting in someone's head a little bit. Yeah, that's been so interesting to to watch. And, and also now how she, specifically she came up recently in a conversation about attribution and uh, how she has kind of really tried to mention more of the people publicly who have been part of all of this sampling. And um, I think it's interesting as well how on the one hand, I would say that this like broad sampling and collaging has always been part of like both Black aesthetic and and punk anarchic aesthetics that can resist capitalism and at the same time aren't entirely able to either when, especially when dealing with how to give all of those artists that are part of it um, their quote-unquote due share. So it brings up a lot. I think so. I do think it also brings up the shift of the last five years. I mean, I'd make it that small. Was this this proposal of the information age when everything would be available, you know, back in the like 1980s, I guess. So here's recycling the 80s. Mm-hmm. And then we get to this moment when you can find out like what that sample is and who the singer is and where she mm-hmm. lives now, what she does. So that doesn't mean that people do that, though. The fact that you can, as you say, give due to all these people and actually you can but that doesn't mean that, you know, millions of people pay attention to you doing it. So then we're encouraged to enter, I think, in this last five years, a realm where we can pay attention to relationship and encounter a little bit differently and hopefully with a bit more care. Like it matters that the three of us are talking to each other, even if every day there's more and more people born who would never listen to this conversation. Yeah. But we start to understand that and to value our encounter in a way that's a little different from, you know, wishing that Beyonce had paid Kellis money. You know, you know, whatever right. that is. <laughs> right. that. They did. For a moment, it was fun to think about maybe for like two seconds. But, you know, we have other things that we're curious about. So it's nice to know who some of the various artists are on an album or in a movie. <laughs> but right. we also now are encouraged because that information is all available we're encouraged to pay attention to what we actually pay attention to. So that's a little bit different than being compelled to care about, you know, who stole whose choreography or lifted a song sample from someone else. Yeah, that's really beautiful. I mean, it gives me somehow a bit of hope when you speak about these kinds of just giving care to the way in which collaborations and conversations and interactions happen that maybe no one pays attention to or no one hears. So there's this kind of, I wouldn't say silence, but there's um, there's a lack of audibility and yet still there's a possibility to to kind of cherish that. It, it, it makes me think about just life, maybe just like a group of people in a room and a DJ just speaking out and mentioning who they're playing at that time and just the people in the room hear it. And then 
it doesn't get recorded and it doesn't get passed on, but just the, the people in the room hear it. And, and there's the, there's a possibility for cherishing that. That's right. And I guess I'm after another part of that too, which is by now, because of our technologies of mass surveillance, it's not really possible for that DJ to be in any room and it not be recorded. It's even recorded as keystrokes on their keyboard or, you know, by a security camera. So my point is just that it's actually possible to find out who they played and for how long, you know, or who we heard when we were in the room with the DJ dancing. Like, all that information is now available. So then we get to pay attention to how we want to be in relationship to that information. So you can look up who each of those, each track was and who were the musicians on it and when was it recorded and, you know, all this backstory. And then maybe if that's the thing that we want to spend 20 or 50 hours with in the little bit of time that we have, you know, in life, <laughs> we get to make that choice. <laughs> but there are probably other things that we want to pay attention to as well, you know. Oh yeah, you're so right. I mean, the the that that's exactly it. That's exactly it. I think that when we dig into, and this is kind of what we've been excavating, what are all the materials and the the the, the hands that have crossed the materiality of the work that we're doing, and the endlessness of of trying to trace that, and you know how much time do we want to put into that? What is what is fair? What is what's right? You know, there's a, a anthropology term that's infinite regress. You know, there's no end to how to sort of chase something down. There's just no end. So, and we make choices about. You no, know, I don't know if it's resisting that regression or the the kind of like excavation, but we do make choices about the container or the boundary, like how much do we want to explore in an area or around a topic or an event? It's always though, an in, I mean, it's infinite regress, so you have to stop somewhere. But I guess the point at which you stop is always a political decision of who of and who, who, who gets left out of that story because it's just too much labor to trace it. That's one way to think of it. I agree with you. And I do think other ways to to conceptualize that, though, might include this vector of intentionality. So in the United States, we do pronoun circles and we do land acknowledgments, but they're not always done with a clarity of intention or a kind of care towards their potential. You know, they're just not always done that way. So then it, it, it kind of matters how how intention unfolds as well, I think. Yeah, exactly. And I come from Australia, and so like that land acknowledgement practice started qu quite a long time ago already there. And um, yeah, yeah, but it, got, it, it does get to the point where like you're on an airplane, and like the airplane lands, and it acknowledges the traditional quote unquote traditional owners who are never ceded their sovereignty. But there's no, there's still no one's actually doing anything to actually return that sovereignty to them. So it does feel hollow in that sense. Yeah. And, you know, the pronoun circle can be very coercive and also can force people into spaces where they might not want to be. <laughs> you know, so uh, yeah. there's, again, a, a political kind of um, wrangling with the actual moment. So for me, it's about a practice of not assuming that every encounter is the same. And that goes back to the question from earlier just now, like, 
you know, sometimes we might need that circle and other times we really might not. So to be available to the encounter and a sense of what might be needed or, or not needed or useful or not useful and, and, and how to, how to sort of value those decisions or intention. Well, maybe we could ask a question about future. You know, when you, when you think about future, do you, do you have some kind of hopes or desires in that sense? Yeah, I do. I mean, I, I just think that I think about how we do have more information and we might even call it better information if that's a useful way to think of it. And at the same time, people aren't necessarily encouraged to engage with more information. So for a, a future hope or a hope of, um, you know, 100, 200 years from now, something like that, just a kind of valuing of discourse and sharing information and paying attention. <laughs> All of these things we're talking about are available in different sort of strains or, or amounts, of course, depending on where people are and what they're up to. But just this idea that there could be a, a kind of enlarged engagement with attention, ideas, thinking, because we do have information that we didn't have 50 years ago, 25 years ago, 100 years ago, and we're not necessarily becoming better people. <laughs> and so I hope that we could keep working on that, like that that will actually shift at some point. There have been so many, you know, I'm a big science fiction fan, and I have from futurist texts and read fantasy and you know, I think mean, two thirds of it is apocalyptic, and then there's just a little tiny strand that's that's around the kind of futurity where there's compassion or you know medical information, and and food deserts have been sort of ameliorated. There's a sharing of resource, but those little tiny slivers of those fantasies and fabulations do help me. <laughs> so I, I lean towards those. I worked with inside a project that was around housing equality in the neighborhood where the university I was teaching was. And we had one of our areas be imagining an equitable sort of reallocation of resource and space in the territory we were talking about. And very few students could work in that. They couldn't kind of move themselves to imagine what else it could be, this what if future. And that was really intriguing to me and also a little sad day. Um, so we spent more time on it together. Like, well, why are we stuck with only the things that haven't worked and kind of proving to our visitors and each other that they haven't worked? Can we imagine a something else? And then what could it look like? You just heard from performer, dancer, and professor at Northwestern University, Thomas F. de France. Tommy directs Slippage, Performance, Culture, Technology, a research lab that explores emerging technology and live performance applications. I spoke to him with my collaborator in Hyenas, Adrian Teicher, in the context of our research about extractivism and the arts. I'm Mad Kate, and you've been listening to Sweat, a series of conversations about performance and performativity of the sexual and sexualized body in work. 
Sweat airs every second Tuesday of the month at 13 hours Central European time on Collaboradio, Free Radios Berlin, Brandenburg, broadcasting on 88.4 FM in Berlin, 90.7 FM in Potsdam, and streaming online at fr-bb.org. Thanks so much, and until next time.